Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. We're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 13. Psalm 13. Uh, it's going to be up here on the screen. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version today because there were a couple of places. Um, I think it was a little bit better in the translation on the Hebrew, so we're going to, we're going to use English Standard Version. And uh, I'm going to read it. You can follow along with me. And then we're going to look at how long, O Lord. Hear now the word of your covenant God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. On March the 25th in 1965, a tired group of people finished a march from Selma, Alabama to the state capitol in Montgomery. And Martin Luther King stepped up on the steps at the capitol building and gave an amazing speech that was full of historical, uh, poetical, and biblical allusions and quotes. And it was kind of known as, Our God is Marching On. But he ended with the refrain, how long? The whole series of questions, and it was how long, not long. How long are we going to suffer? Not long. How long before the oppression is ended? Not long. And so when I read Psalm 13 and was meditating on it at the beginning of the week, that was one of the first things that came to my mind. So I looked up the, the speech of Martin Luther King because I've actually heard it before, the audio of it. If, if you never have I would encourage you, it's an amazing speech to read, well worth your time. You can Google how long, not long, and you'll find the speech and read it. It's well worth your time. But I bring it up today because, first off, it's Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, we're, we're celebrating the birthday tomorrow. Um, but also because he's using this biblical illusion of how long. The civil rights struggle was a long struggle, and many of the people have become weary, and he uses this illusion, how long, and as I said, it comes out of the scripture. The phrase, how long, as a cry, occurs 22 times in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are full of a cry of how long, O Lord, and for Martin Luther King and the psalmist before him, how long is not some kind of just a rhetorical device. It is a cry that rises out of the depth of the soul and says things are not the way they should be 
And how long is it going to stay this way? How long, O oh Lord, until you look and you give me relief from what I suffer? And so today we're going to look at Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord? Now, as we dive into the psalm, I want to start by giving us a little bit of literary structure. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some literature stuff here for a moment, but I think you'll see why it's important. Psalm 13 is what's known as a lament. And in fact, it is the classic lament. And in all kinds of books you can get, if you, if you have all kinds of books about studying the Bible like I do, they'll talk about what a lament is. And almost always they go to Psalm 13 because it is the classic lament. It shows you what a lament is. And they are a very common literary genre in Scripture. The, the funny thing is, because of the way we are in America very often, particularly in the predominantly evangelical church, if you ask people, what are the Psalms like? They usually tell you, well, it's about praise. But that's not true. The common Psalm is actually lament. What we just read is much more typical than the Lord is my shepherd. Much more typical is how long, oh God, where are you at? What is going on? How long will I be oppressed? And a lament is a cry of anguish and despair to God. And they have a common structure. And I'm not going to go over the, the structure in detail. I've done this in the past. If you look up on the website, you can see I taught on Psalm 13 like 13 or 14 years ago. And I talked about laments. We were going through the book of Psalms. And uh, Traditionally, a lament can have up to seven parts to it. Virtually none of them have all seven, but they, they have different ones. But there's a general structure that's really important to understand. And that general structure is that there is a movement from grief to glory. Laments start out, things are bad, and they end with, but it's going to be okay, God is here. So if you notice in this psalm, if Beth, you can put up the screen, the next screen. Right here, you can see the first four verses are basically grief. How long, O oh Lord? Where are you at? What's going on here? And the last two verses are what I'm referring to as glory. But I've trusted in your love, so I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise you. It's going to be okay. And almost all laments go that way in the Scripture. There are actually only two laments in the whole book of Psalms that don't move to glory. And really only one of them, one of them ends with darkness is my closest friend. It never got resolved, okay? But all the other laments moved from grief to glory, from, from lamenting to offering praise to God. They begin with a plea for help, and then they move to praise. They end with praise. And Psalm 13 is that way, and it's used because it's very short, and it's got a very clear structure. So I want to look at the specific structure of Psalm 13. There's three key parts in this psalm as it moves from lament to praise. So notice up here, the first two verses, which are kind of in a green color up there, are the protest. This is where David is having a cry of complaint. He's protesting to God, things aren't right. Verses three and four are a petition. David is giving a plea for deliverance saying, God, things aren't right, and I'm asking you to do something about it. And then verses 5 and 6 are praise. This is the song of confidence. So we have verses 1 and 2 are a protest, verses 3 and 4 are a petition, and verses 5 and 6 are praise. That's how this prayer of David is constructed, from protest to plea to praise, from grief to glory. That's the structure of 
laments typically and very specifically here, and it's easy to see in this psalm. So now with that kind of as a literary background, we're going to dive in and break this down and look at it. So Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? David, as I said, begins with the protest, and the protest is described as how long? Notice he says in verses 1 and 2 four times, how long? How long, O Lord? How long would you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel of my soul? How long will the enemy be exalted over me? There is real anguish going on here. Notice David is not coming into prayer when things are bad and acting like they're all okay, the way many of us have been taught to do. We've been taught when you're in those times, just don't, don't say that, don't tell God that, just say the good stuff. But that's not where David starts. David starts with real anguish. How long, O oh Lord? What is going on here? This seems to be lasting forever. And David lays out that there are three sources of trouble that are causing this protest. And I'm going to do them kind of in a, a logical order. And we'll see that David begins with what I'm going to mention last. But there's a reason why I'm doing it this way. David uh, lists three sources. First, there are enemies. Notice in verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, what's interesting is the enemy is not named in the psalm. Now, scholars like to argue over this stuff. They like to struggle and figure out exactly who the enemy is. But I want to suggest to you there's a reason we don't know exactly who the enemy is. And it's the reason that the psalms have been so popular down through history. The enemy is, the, the, the psalm is basically, how long shall my, insert your enemy here, triumph over me? It's not a specific enemy. It's whatever enemy somebody was facing at the time. And so David leaves it, whatever his particular enemy is, is not what's of the greatest concern. The fact is, there is an enemy. Now, what's interesting in this psalm, and this is part of why David's got such a cry at the beginning of this psalm, is we, we don't know what the enemy is, but we know what it is not. The enemy is not David's sin. There is no confession of sin in this psalm, Okay? Now, that's not to say that David doesn't have sin. We know he does. It's not to say that it's not right to confess sin. It certainly is. You know, we looked at Psalm 51 back during Advent. There are many psalms of confession in the Scripture. It is to say, however, in Psalm 13, whatever David is facing, it's not because of David's own sin. And this is important for us to understand some of the most painful experiences of life are not the result of our own sin, but rather we suffer in spite of trying to walk uprightly. You're trying to do what's right, and the end result is you are suffering and an enemy is coming against you. Now, there's, there's another time, again, if we're looking at Psalm 51, it's about our sin, but that's not what's going on in Psalm 13. What's going on in Psalm 13 is that David has no mention of sin, but yet, in spite of that, things are a mess, which is one of the reasons Dr. King used this psalm rather than like Psalm 51, because what he was going through is saying, all we're trying to do is work for civil rights, work for equal rights, and yet we are being killed. And, and in that speech, he lists multiple people who had died in the struggle for civil rights and saying, we're only standing up for who we are as the image of God, and yet we suffer. 
And David's going through something similar here. And so for us, as we use this psalm, enemies might include a number of things. Obviously, first off, it could include relational problems with people who are literally our enemies. They are against us. They are working and trying to undo us, do harm for us, create problems for us. Those are real enemies. Sometimes our enemy is a relational problem we're having with someone that's not an enemy. They're actually family or friend, but the relationship itself has become a problem. The relationship is creating issues, and it makes me feel distant from God. It makes me feel distant from the good places of life. I suddenly feel shut off and cut out of what I want life to be, and it's happening because of the relationship with someone I actually love and care about. Sometimes the enemy is physical sickness. Some scholars think that's what David's dealing with here because he mentions death in verse 3, as we'll see in a few moments, but we don't know that. But, but if you've ever been through a real sickness, you know what it's like to cry, how long, O Lord? When, when I had my stomach bug the other day for just 12 hours, I was crying, how long, O Lord? <laughs> when is this going to be over? I mean, I just want this done, okay? But the reality is, I don't need Psalm 13 in that. The answer is it was over in 12 hours. Some of y'all realize there are sicknesses that don't last 12 hours. They don't last 12 days. They don't last 12 months. They don't last 12 years. It's a lifetime. And when you face that, and your body is your enemy, that is a hard place to be. And when you are in that spot, how long, oh Lord, is what comes on your lips. And people telling you, just, you know, cheer up. That, that's being Job's friend. How long, O oh Lord, when my body is turned against me? Sometimes it's financial problems. We're, we're cut off. We're, we're facing what seems to be financial ruin. And it can go on and on. And there are struggles. And every time you think you've turned a corner, it's something worse. I remember a few years ago, I was running a road race and... It's called the dreaded Druid Hills, and there's this really twisted, sick hill that is mile four. And every time you turn a corner, you think it's going flat, and it doesn't. It just keeps going up. And people start dropping out, and they start walking. And I started muttering under my breath, what sick person designed this course? I mean, they have serious mental problems. And the hard part is you keep, after a while, you start saying there's a turn up there, but you're not fooling me. That turn is just another hill. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And sometimes you go through like financial things and you keep thinking we're going to turn the corner and you don't turn the corner. When you turn it, it's just worse than it was before. One last one. Sometimes there's demonic forces. The scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. Ultimately, behind all of these things are demonic forces and issues. And they can be there. And the Apostle Paul, you remember, says he cried out. And I will bet you money, if we get to heaven and you ask, I bet Paul prayed Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to take this thorn of my flesh away? I am trying to serve you. I am trying to labor. And yet it seems to only get worse. Okay? All of those are there. And so 
And I want to even point out that one of the reasons that I think it's kind of futile when scholars, and I understand why they do it and they're paying money, and they were, well, was it a physical thing or was it some kind of a spiritual thing? The answer is yes. Because quite honestly, have you ever noticed when you get physically sick, do you feel spiritually wonderful or does it tend to cause problems spiritually as well? Man, our body affects the way our soul feels. And the same thing happens. You can be in peak physical condition, but suddenly have soul problems, relational problems. You feel like you are in the depths of the valley, and what starts happening to your body? Your body feels sick. You suddenly feel like you have no energy. You feel drained because you cannot separate humans out. We're not Gnostic. You can't separate body and soul that way. One affects the other and they feed each other, which of course makes it worse because what started as a spiritual problem is now a physical problem or what started as a physical problem is now a spiritual problem. And at the end of it all, all I can say is, how long, O Lord? When are you going to deliver me? This enemy is crushing me. Now, what that leads to then is the second enemy, and the second enemy is the self. I've got something causing me a problem, and now the self starts having internal thoughts, struggles, and fears. Notice in verse 2, the way the ESV puts it is, how long must I take counsel in my soul? And that's a pretty literal rendering of the Hebrew where everybody kind of struggles with this, but the idea of counsel in my soul, the NIV actually captured by saying, how long will it, must I wrestle with my thoughts? But notice in the parallel verse here, we know what it means because he says, and have sorrow in my heart. How long is linked with all the day and counsel in my soul is sorrow in my heart. Because when we are wrestling and the enemy seems to always get the upper hand and I turn another corner and there's just more and bigger enemies there and I am struggling, I start to, to have wrestling with my own thoughts. The counsels in my own soul become difficult. The presence of the enemy produces a struggle in me. And who in here has experienced where your thoughts become full of doubt, fear, struggle? And suddenly, your biggest enemy, you start thinking, might be yourself. I mean, it's gone from whatever started the problem to now inside my own mind. It, it's like the spies in the land. I'm just a grasshopper, and there are giants in the land. They might not have started off as giants, but they are now. And that's what David says, God, because the enemy is here and doing this, how long am I going to have to struggle and wrestle with my thoughts, God? I try to lay down, and my mind is going, and it's not going good places. Anybody ever been there? And see, that is real life. Now, this does not sell a million books at the Christian bookstore. Because in America, we don't want to believe this is part of life. But let me tell you when this will not be part of life. When Jesus plants his feet back on planet earth, then this will cease to be a problem. But until then, it's an issue. It's a struggle. And there is a wrestling with our thought. Um, the final enemy, and this is the worst one, is God. That sounds strange, but notice verse 1. What David says is, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God's saying, God, David's saying, where are you? See, I see the enemy. He's right there. The enemy is close. He's with me all the time, but I can't find you. 
And in fact, God, it seems like you have turned your face away from me. Now, so notice here this idea of how long will you hide your face from me? Remember the blessing that the priests were told to put on Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you. And David says, yeah, but God, the, the priest keeps saying that, and I keep looking, and your face is turned away. Every time he says it, your face seems to turn further away from me. When your face looks at me, God, there is light. When your face looks at me, God, there is blessing. But right now, your face seems to be turned away, and it's dark, and it is full of cursing and problems and pain. And so David says, God, I move from my enemy to myself, but here's my ultimate problem, God. You are my only hope. You are my only solution, and you seem to have forgotten me. And the few times you're not forgetting me, you're positively turning away from me. Has anybody here ever felt that way? Man, this is, this is real life. And let me give you a bit of depressing news. Uh, I just hit, I was saved in January 1978, 39 years ago. So I can tell you, 39 years into this walk, it is still there. So you're not going to grow out of this. I might point out that David was in a close enough relationship with God, he wrote about as much of the Bible as almost anybody else. And yet he still had this. And I wish I could tell you the laments were immature, David, but once he gets mature, we don't have any more laments. Doesn't work that way. Okay? It's a struggle. And there is a struggle where God seems distant. This is what is called the dark night of the soul. When we are assailed by enemies without and doubts and fears within and God seems distant or absent. The apparent absence of God in the dark night of the soul is more crushing than the presence of my worst enemy. See, that's the ultimate problem. I can deal with the enemies, God. I can wrestle with my thoughts. But oh God, if I look up and I feel like you have forgotten me, I have no hope. I, where do I turn when I feel like God has turned his face from me? Have you experienced that? See, that is, this is Martin Luther who wrote a lot about the dark night of the soul. He said, this is the place where hope turns to despair. But, Despair also turns to hope. But it is a place to walk through. It is a valley of the shadow of death. And that's what David is talking about here in this psalm. And aren't you glad that the psalm didn't end at verse 2? I mean, that, that would be a tough place to stay. But I wanna, I'm going to point this out several times. You have to begin here. You have to begin with lament, or else my prayer is a lie. If I can't cry out to God, that's the amazing thing. How many of you are a little shocked that God lets David talk to him this way? I'm going to be encouraging. We're going to put a little video out this week where I'm going to talk to you all about praying about the Psalms. It'll just be a two- or three-minute video. We're going to do these periodically. Um, I encourage you to pray the Psalms and ask yourself, what if I just stood up in church and prayed this out loud in America today? You'd be surprised how many Bible verses you would feel like you would need to cut out. 
Because people would say, what kind of a prayer was that? It was a prayer that God apparently liked because he put it in the Bible. <laughs> Out of all the prayers that have been prayed, he put it there. And God says, it's okay to say, how long, O oh Lord, you've forgotten me. You said you were going to turn your face towards me, but I look and God, all I'm seeing is the back of your head. Where are you at? And God allows David to pray that prayer. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of evangelical Christians today will tell you you shouldn't pray that prayer. But I think God knows more about what we ought to pray than other people do. So God says, cry out how long? Now, notice next, David moves to petition. And this is in verses 3 and 4. David's laid out, this is, you know, he's laid out his protest, his problem, but he doesn't stop there. He moves to say, okay, so now i got to ask God for what I need, his petition, in verses 3 and 4. And so notice, he's not giving in to the enemies or despair. In the dark night, he doesn't give up on God. He clings to God, and he cries out to God, and he gives three requests, which the ESV translates, consider, answer, and light up my eyes. Okay, this is his three direct requests to God in the psalm. God, I want you to consider me. I want you to look on me. The NIV says, look on me. And that's, in other words, instead of looking away from me, I've said you've turned your face away. I want you to look at me, God. Open your eyes up, and do you see what is happening to me? God, I want you to answer me. Don't remain silent. You forgot me. I've been listening for your voice, and all I hear is my enemies around me. God, I want you to answer my call. Don't remain silent, and do not let my enemies prevail. And finally, God, give me your light. Don't leave me to my own thoughts, O oh God. See, these, these relate back to the three problems that he had. God, I need you to look on me. I don't want you to be my enemy. Don't look away. God, I need you to answer me. I don't want my enemies to have the final word. And God, I need you to give me light. I need your light to break in on me because I have got troubled thoughts right now. I don't know what to think. God, I need you to answer each of my three enemies that I'm facing. And so notice what he's doing is the petitions responding to each of the problems in verses one and two. Now that last phrase there, giving light, you may say, well, are you just kind of making that up and does it respond? But I want you to show you, it actually is the same way in Scripture. In Job 17, 7, Job, in the midst of his prayer, I mean, Job is an entire book of lament, basically. And notice what Job says in Job 17, 7. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. So notice that the, they're, because of me wrestling with my thoughts, Job is saying, my eyes are lacking light. Well, that's what David's saying, the same thing in Psalm 13. How long ago? I, I have no light because you've turned the light of your face away from me. I'm asking you to turn to me. Let light break in so my mind won't be vexed, so I won't be struggling and wrestling with my own thoughts. The only way out of that, God, is your word needs to break forth because you cannot reason your way out of the valley. You cannot logic and talk your way out of this. All you can do is look to God and cling to God until God speaks a word. And then that brings freedom to us. And so when we are in the dark night of the soul, we begin with honest protests to God, but we must move to laying our plea for help before him. If our uh, prayer does not begin with honest pain, it's hypocritical. 
But if it does not move to believing pleas for help, it's simply whining. You understand? If you don't have protest and plea for help, it's not really prayer. If I don't have the protest, it's hypocritical. And I've got news for you. God already knows what's going on inside your heart. Better than you do. Better than I do. And you might fool me and I might fool you, but we're not fooling God. He knows where we are at. And so God says you have to not be hypocritical, but open with the protest. But don't stop at whining, because this is another problem we have. I like to whine and talk endlessly about my problems, but don't ever get around to actually asking God to intervene and believing that he's actually going to break through. And so either one of those are not prayer. They're lying or they're whining. We don't want those. We want prayer. Okay, because that's where the resolution comes. That again, that's what I loved about Dr. King's speech. In the midst of the struggle, he he cried out and admitted what the problems were, but he said, how long? Not long. Our God is marching on. There is a light. It is coming. God is going to do this. He held to hope in the midst of it. And let me tell you, there were a lot of folks around Dr. King that were giving up hope. They were given up. They were looking to other ways and other means because they decided it's just not worth the price we're having to pay. But David here and Dr. King following him said, no, I cling to God and I keep crying out to him. I'm not going to be hypocritical in my prayer, but I'm also not going to just whine. I'm going to lay out my protest and then I'm going to have a believing plea to God for help. And as a result of that, finally, in verses 5 and 6, it moves to praise. And notice This amazing turn. And I want to be clear. I think sometimes with laments, and I don't know, but there may have been a long period of time between verse 4 and 5. Okay? Experientially, I can tell you there's oftentimes a long period of time between verses 4 and 5. There's a break. Okay? And we have to to live in verses 1 to 4. And then 5 breaks through. This is not a formula. That tells you, if you have a bad week this week, just pray Psalm 13, and by the time you get to verse 5, everything will be okay. Okay, You you might spend months living in Psalm 13. But notice here what happens. Verse 5, I love this word. But, but I, there is an emphatic turn in the Hebrew. If you want to catch the Spirit, David is saying, but I, As for me, this is what's going to go on, but I, as for me, the enemies don't do what I'm about to say, but I do. But I, as for me, I almost slipped, O God, but here I am. But I, as for me, in the midst of this, I am looking to you, Yahweh. I have complained that your face has been turned. I have complained that you forgot me. I have complained that the enemy seemed to have me. I have been wrestling with my thoughts. Everything seems to be falling apart. But I, as for me, Yahweh, I am still looking to you. There is no other source of help. And it is emphatic in the Hebrew. He didn't need to use the pronoun I. And in fact, it's really weird because they usually do verb and then subject. And you don't even have to have the subject. He not only put the subject in, he moved it up front in the sentence. This is a big, underlined, bold, stars. Look at that. But I, there's a change, there's a transformation here. And what is it? But I, as for me, I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is verse 5. 
I've spoken of this word before. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Very important word. It means God's covenant love and his mercy. If you remember the psalm that, you know, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever, and that psalm keeps saying that, that's chesed, his covenant faithful love. It's not even about an emotion. It is about loyalty. It is about faithfulness. It is about a relationship that is unbroken and unbreakable. And so the move from protest to praise comes as David remembers and as we remember and trust the covenant love and faithfulness of God. David doesn't give himself a divine pep talk. David meditates on God's covenant love and mercy. God, it seems like your face is turned away, but I know you are not a God who turns away. It seems like my enemy is near and you are far, but I know you are God who is closer than my closest friend. It seems like, oh God, the enemies are going to triumph, but I know you are the Lord of armies and you are going to win out and you are going to do it for me. And so we cry out to God in trust because he is faithful to his covenant, because he has come to us in the past and he's going to do it again. And notice here, he specifically says, but I, as for me, I have trusted and so I will rejoice. Now I'm putting up on the screen here, notice the words in green, you can tell here from English, these are a perfect tense. It deals with something that is already completed in the past. The words that are in orange are imperfect tense. They deal with things that are still going to be happening. And so what David is saying here, notice is, I have trusted in your steadfast love because you have dealt bountifully with me. That's my past experience. And therefore, my heart shall rejoice in the present and into the future. And I will sing to the Lord in the present and in the future. Based on what you have done in the past, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to praise from this point and moving forward. And so we can praise God in our present and our future circumstances because he's been faithful to us in our past circumstances. That's why we don't stop by just whining. We remind ourselves, God, when I think about this, you have been faithful. I have seen, I have watched, I have understood how you have worked. And to do this, to put it in, in our parlance, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of God's covenant love and God's past faithfulness. We remind ourselves that when we were enemies of God, he loved us. We remind ourselves that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he raised us up. We remind ourselves that when we have sinned, he has forgiven us. We remind ourselves when our faith was all but shattered, he held to us. We remind ourselves that when, like Peter, Satan was desiring to sift us as wheat, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you and your faith will stand. That's what we do. We preach the gospel to ourselves. And that's where we can move out of protest, out of grief, and we can move towards glory. So now, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? First, a simple question. Do I understand the dark night? 
Do I understand the dark night? Everybody in here faces times like the one in Psalm 13. Everybody. We face times where we are surrounded by trouble. We are struggling with internal turmoil. And worst of all, God seems silent or asleep. We try to be too pious and too religious to say that, but that's where the deepest problem is. Is God seems like he's fallen silent or asleep. And I want to remind you what I'm talking about today. There are times where the need is confession, but that's not in Psalm 13. This is not specifically because of David's sin. That's Psalm 51, many other psalms. But here, the dark night was not David getting the natural consequences of his sin. The dark night was in spite of David trying to walk uprightly. And these are some of the toughest times of life. They are painful. And unfortunately, they can last. And we wish we could get out of them quick. That's why some of the false gospels that are out there sell. Because when you are hurting, do we become susceptible to snake oil salesmen? Man, I got this little bottle of this stuff, and you sent me 19.95, and this will fix all your problems. And it's amazing how I can start believing that, isn't it? So I just want relief. I just want it to stop. And the fact is, sometimes we go through a dark night and we will draw our last breath and we'll still never know why we went through it. We don't know what went on. God half answered Job. At least he came and spoke to Job at the end. Didn't really answer all of his questions. But sometimes you don't get that. You don't know why it's happened this way. But one thing is certain. There are many purposes for the dark night, but I want to focus on one today. One purpose is to cause me to cry out to God and draw close to Him in prayer. One reason when you're in a dark night, whatever that enemy is, God is calling us to draw close to Him. And we particularly need that reminder here. We are a culture that prizes self-sufficiency which is a wonderful thing if you happen to be God. But if you're anyone other than God, self-sufficiency is a delusion, not a foundation for life. And so the dark night comes, and one of the things it does is it works in us a, a, a crying out to God, a looking to God, a praying to God, a seriously clinging to God. One of the commentators, he lived in the 1800s, that wrote on this, I was reading his commentary, and he had this great phrase. This is one of the things he said we learned out of this psalm. And it was this. It's W.S. Plummer was his name. That is good for us, which leads us to pray. It is better to be praying in the whale's belly than asleep in the ship. Now, that's a hard thing. Because i got to tell you, there's a lot of me that says, I'll just take the ship. I'll skip the whale's belly. But we need to understand 
one of the things that happens in the dark night is he's right. Better to be in the whale's belly and close to Yahweh and clinging to him and crying out to him and self-sufficient and satisfied and asleep in the hold of the ship. And so, tease out this question. Do I see that the dark night does not mean I've been forsaken by God? Even if it seems like I have. It feels like God has forsaken me. But God is a covenant-keeping God, and he has sworn, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Do I understand that? The dark night is not the actual absence of God. It is not the actual turning of God's face away, even though it seems like it. And when I meditate on that and I answer that question, that leads to the final part of teasing this question out. Do I let the dark night draw me to God in prayer or do I turn to other pursuits to numb the pain and fear? The dark night is supposed to make me turn to God in prayer. But I don't know about you all, I'm an expert at coming up with other things to occupy my mind. I'm an expert at coming up with other ways to numb the pain rather than clinging to God and crying out in prayer. And I suspect you are as well. I think we probably all have PhDs in that area. I can find something else. But see, that's not what the dark night's for. The dark night is so that we draw closer to God than ever before to where we come out. And some of the Psalms, they don't put it in exactly this way, but there are times where David's come to the end and says, you know, God, I, I've, been, I've been laid out and I can't stand this. And then at the end of the Psalm, he's like, oh, search me, oh God. I cry out, I want more. The, the end result of this was so good, I'm glad that it happened. Okay? I'm glad I was in the whale's belly because it was better than being asleep in the hold of the ship. Do we realize that and do we let it have its way? Now, that leads to the proper response to the dark night. If I'm in it, and I understand why it's there, how do I respond to it? Well, number one, as we've looked at Psalm 13, we begin by honestly laying out our problems, our frustrations, our doubts, and our fears to God and asking for help. Remember, the laments. Psalms is the most often quoted book in the New Testament, which should tell us how important the Holy Spirit seems to think it is. It's the longest book in the Bible, and it's the most often quoted in the New Testament. Over 400 times it's quoted or alluded to. And laments are the most common part of the Psalms. And they always begin this way. They begin with open, honest, laying out of problems. And so I want to encourage us to learn from the Psalms. They are here. If you want to know and say, what kind of prayer does God like? Well, I can give you 150 prayers he really likes because he wrote them down for us and gave them to us. And we should learn how to pray from the book of Psalms. In fact, use the Psalms to guide us in our prayer in the dark night of the soul. Now, again, I'm going to put a little bit of a video out 
uh, on Tuesday. We're going to put it out Tuesday or Wednesday this week. We'll put it out, and I'm going to encourage y'all some more in that. This is a regular part of my practice. I've had people who I pray with in prayer meetings that have commented and said, you seem to pray the Psalms a lot. Yes, I do, because I already know God likes those prayers. He may not like whatever thing I'm concocting up in my head, but I know he likes these so I'm going to go with And they teach me how to pray. And in fact, the great thing about the Psalms is you all know what I'm saying. Sometimes you're in a place and you can feel something inside. It may be bad. You may be struggling. You may be in lament. It may be praise. And you can't quite get the words to do it. Well, here's the good thing. There's words already there. If you're in the dark night and you don't know what else to say, then just open Psalm 13 and say, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to turn your face from me? How long are my enemies going to triumph over me? God, where are you at? And I bet you will find yourself the way I do saying, that's what I'm feeling inside, right there. That's what I'm doing. So I encourage us, use the Psalms to do that. And remember, if whether you're praying the Psalm or not, if we are in a dark night and our prayer does not begin with our honest pain, it's just hypocritical and vain. It's empty words because it's not honestly where we are at. Dark nights are meant in part to drive us to passionate prayer, not trying to get flowery into things. You know what I'm talking about. When you are in that place and everything is falling apart and you are crying out to God, okay, seriously crying out to God, that's what dark nights are meant to do. So I want to encourage you. I'll sound a little bit, if, if any of you are fans of John Piper, you will understand. Don't waste the dark night. Don't waste it. Piper wrote a book a few years ago when he had cancer and, and the prognosis was not, nobody knew whether he was going to live or not, and he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer because he said this can work eternal weight of glory in your soul if you respond rightly or it can do nothing. So don't waste the dark night. Go to God in fervent prayer. But the second part of that response in our prayer is we preach the gospel to ourselves. As we are praying and as we pray through the Psalms, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind us of God, ourselves of God's covenant love. We rehearse to ourselves how God has acted in the past, both with his covenant people down through history and in our own lives, and how he has faithfully been with us in good times and ill. And here's the really good news. When David prayed Psalm 13, he understood God's covenant love, but he didn't understand it like you can understand it because the king, the son of God, had not come and borne our sin. David was only seeing shadows of that. You and I have the ultimate proof of it all. We remind ourselves as we preach the gospel to ourselves, we remind ourselves that Christ was forsaken on the cross so that we might not be forsaken when we are bearing our own cross. When Christ took up the lament from Psalm 22 and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had actually turned his face away so that he will never turn his face away from you or me. It may feel like he has turned his face away, but he will not because he turned it away from Christ so that he would never turn it away from you. We remind ourselves when Christ cried out in lament, God heard and delivered him even from death. He was heard. I mean, you want to talk about, Jesus didn't walk into the valley of the shadow of death. He walked into death and appeared to have lost everything. 
And God brought him through that by resurrection. And friend, I want to tell you, when it feels like you are in the valley and it feels like all hope has died, preach the gospel to yourself. And the same spirit that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead will resurrect your hope and will resurrect mine. And that's what we do. We begin with our protest and our plea, but we move to praise because God has been faithful. And friends, if we do that, if we don't waste our dark night, we will find ourselves moving from grief to glory. We find ourselves moving through. And I want to encourage us to do that. Let's stand together. We're going to close with prayer. And I want to encourage you. I know there are people here in a dark night. And I don't know that because I'm saying, well, there's, you know, 150 people here, so just odds are. I know it because I'm walking with you in dark nights. And I want to encourage you. For some of us, maybe that is sin, and that would have been a different teaching. But for many of you, this is not because of anything you've done to fail God. This is not because of your sin. You're in a dark night. Beset by enemies without fears and doubts and struggles you don't even want to articulate to me, and I already know they're there. And I want to encourage you, cry out to God. You have a Father who wants to work in this dark night, and He wants you to hear His voice, and He wants you to draw close. And friend, when you have heard the voice of God in the, in the silent chamber, when you have seen the light of God in the depth of darkness, it will work something in your soul and in mine that will be eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we can all relate to this psalm. Father, I look at places in Scripture and I think, wow, I can't imagine a guy stretched his rod out and a huge sea opened up. I've, I've never been there and seen that, Lord. I've never seen a few small fish and loaves feed thousands. But God, I have been in the place where David was. I've been surrounded by enemies. I have heard my own internal voice that was full of doubt and fear and struggle. I have felt like you had forgotten me when in fact I had forgotten what you had done to be so faithful to me. And Lord, I know there are not just a few, but many of us in this room that have experienced this exact same thing. And Father, I pray for all of us here because unfortunately we live in a church and an age that wants to act like laments are not a real part of life. We want to act like everything always ought to be better than it was the day before. We want to act like if I'm growing in Christ, there should never be struggles and doubts and fears. But Father, that's simply not true. 
I look at the great men of God in the Scripture, Abraham and Moses and David, Paul and Peter, and I see the same pattern in them that I observe in myself. And oh Lord, I even look at Jesus on the cross, not just throwing out a few pithy words, but crying out a lament. Oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, wherever it is sank into their soul, that the words of Psalm 13 would be inappropriate for a believer. Father, I pray you would surgically remove that. Father, I pray you would deliver us from that bad theology. Father, I pray for every one of us, especially those who are in the dark night right now. God, my Father, I pray they do not need a word from me. They do not need a word from another brother or sister. Father, they need to hear your voice. Lord, you are their shepherd. Father, I pray you would speak to them. Father, they need to feel your presence with them there in that dark night. Father, they need to see your light. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to them. Father, we are, it's like what Paul said, Lord, we can be counted as sheep all day to be slaughtered for your sake, Lord, as long as we know that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we can be under the the difficulty and surrounded by the enemies as long, oh God, as we know that we're not cut off from your love. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, anyone who is struggling and you feel distant, anyone who is struggling and it seems like they are cut off, God, I pray that you would speak to them. God, I pray as they open your word this week, your voice would come to them. God, I even pray as they sleep or they wake, Lord, that you would speak to them. Oh, God, hear our prayer. And Father, I pray that the result would be, Lord, as we hear your voice, we would say, how long, not long. How long, not long. And Father, I pray that you would rise up and you would scatter the enemies. Lord, where the enemy is sickness, I pray for healing for my brothers and sisters. Lord, where the enemy our relational problems, oh God, I pray that you would bring health and healing by your Holy Spirit. You would bring revelation in what we should do or do differently. Father, where the problems are financial or job or whatever, Father, I pray that you would break through because, Lord, whatever our need, you are Yahweh Yireh. On the mountain of the Lord, it is provided. Oh, Father, I pray that you would break through the dark night and bring the light of your presence. And Lord, I ask that you would do this, not because I have a right to claim it, not because I've spoken my prayer absolutely correctly, but because of your covenant love and mercy that is given to us in Jesus Christ once and for all. Father, I thank you. I pray you would do all of this in Jesus' mighty name name. Amen. Now may the Lord answer you when you are in distress, and may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, and may he grant you support from his throne. Through Jesus Christ, go in the peace and blessing of God.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.